This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Eleutheria Calogera, who is uh, completing her fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology. Welcome, Eleutheria. Hello, Dr. Ramirez. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast. Of course, my pleasure. Um, today we're going to be talking about a really great paper uh, you published in um, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, titled, The Use of Bowel Preparation Does Not Reduce Postoperative Infectious Morbidity Following Minimally Invasive or Open uh, Hysterectomies. So I wanted to um, to start by you know sort of like having you putting the topic in perspective for the audience. I mean, clearly this is uh, one of the areas with high level of controversy in general surgery and certainly also in gynecologic oncology surgery. So we kind of, you know, obviously we keep going back and forth about it as to whether to use bowel prep or not use bowel prep. Um, I was interested in if you can just tell me, like, what is the latest in the literature on this topic uh, for, for colorectal and for GYN surgery? Uh, that's actually very true. <laughs> it is uh, definitely a very controversial topic. Uh, as you mentioned, not only in gynecologic surgery, but general surgery and colorectal surgery. And definitely the practice has fluctuated over the years. And I think it would be helpful in order to put the literature into perspective to just um, review a little bit briefly what was the literature, what was the practice and how it has actually changed over the past 10 years and where it has left us right now. So I think for most of our generation of surgeons, I think we learned to use bowel preparation. It was passed down to us from our teachers, more like a dogma. That's how things were done. That's how we were taught to do it. That's how we used to do it uh, for a good amount of time. And it was perhaps around the 1990s where practice started to change a little bit. And that was as a direct result, I feel, of the fast track surgery that actually later formed into the enhanced recovery. A lot of the things that we used to do came to question. And while bowel preparation was being used at that time, looking at the literature, there was truly no data that actually led to its implementation. It was just making sense at that time. So it was around the same time that we first had the first randomized controlled trials from colorectal surgery that actually showed that the use of mechanical bowel preparation was not really associated with any benefit, no reduction in the effects of morbidity, no prevention of anastomotic leaks. And that is how close to 10 years ago, the first practices started to omit the use of bowel preparation. And that was also when some of the enhanced recovery pathways in gynecologic surgery started and actually omitted the use of bowel preparation. Over the course of the past, I would say, five years or so, um, some new literature actually came from the colorectal surgery that actually showed that perhaps the addition of oral antibiotics to the mechanical bowel preparation may provide some benefits. And this is where the colorectal literature is currently at this point. And that's how some of the pathways in colorectal surgery started to reintroduce the bowel preparation in combination with oral antibiotics and mechanical bowel preparation. Now, I think what is important to realize with regards to gain surgery and the literature surrounding the use of bowel preparation is that 
there is really no um, literature that investigated the use of bowel preparation in open surgeries within gyne surgery. When we did a review of the literature, uh, we actually were surprised to find out that the only literature that was published was actually on minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. And what that shows that there was no benefit in their use. So we did uh, see some enhanced recovery pathways that were publishing that they were safe to omit their use, but our community has been relatively resistant to consider forgoing it. And this is how we decided that there is a big gap in the gynecologic surgery literature for many years trying to address this question. That's what we're trying to do. I see. And, um, and, and what was the primary objective of, of the study? And in, in particularly, what were the outcomes that you were interested in evaluating? Because I know a lot of these studies have different outcome measures. So if you can tell us about your study. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, our primary goal was to investigate whether the use of any type of bowel preparation um, and by any type, I mean any of the existing types, so mechanical bowel preparation alone, oral antibiotics used alone, or a combination of the two, whether any type of those is actually associated with a decrease in post-operative infectious morbidity compared to not using any bowel preparation alone. And that was before hysterectomies done either for benign or malignant indications. So the outcomes of interest, as I alluded to, is um, or were the use of um, a measure for postoperative infectious morbidity. And what we chose was the surgical site infection rate, in addition to the rate of anosomotic leaks. Now, we did have some secondary outcomes that we included, such as the postoperative dealers and the major morbidity, but essentially leak rate and the infection rate after surgery was uh, our primary outcomes. Yeah, and, and those are really obviously what, what we're most interested in, infections and, and leak rates. So with regards to the methodology of, uh, of the study, can you tell us a little bit about the tools that you used? I was particularly interested if you could describe for the audience what is a commercial health plan database? That's actually a great question. There are some, I think there are some interesting points uh, in our study from a, from a methodological standpoint. Um, I will answer your question about what is this type of database a little bit indirectly by saying that when we first started to uh, plan this study, we realized early on that in order to answer our question, we really needed to have as large and comprehensive of a population as possible in order to increase our chances to have an adequately power study. So we first looked at what uh, was the approach from some of the colorectal surgery literature. So some of those studies, they use the NSQIP database, which we felt at that time that would be a great option for our study. Unfortunately, in contrast to the colorectal surgery uh, side of things, there is no data on bowel preparation in gynecologic surgery. And this is how we turned our attention to using the OptumLAMS database. So this is um, a commercial health plan database. And what that means is that these databases primarily contain the identified claims data from large commercial health insurance companies. What is unique about the Optum Labs database is that in addition to having the claims data, they have links, electronic health records and clinical data and 
quality data and cost data. So it's a very rich linked data set. And it does cover a very diverse group of patients from different ages, geographic locations. So it's a pretty comprehensive uh, database. Okay. Uh, speaking about... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. There's another thing that I think is important because it may come up as... Um, um, a discussion about limitations, about retrospective studies and large data sets. Another thing that I think is important and I would like to point out is that we did use um, a methodological approach called propensity score matching. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's important to note because one of the things with large data sets and retrospective studies is that perhaps the cohorts and baseline may be very heterogeneous mm-hmm. and perhaps sometimes there's the argument whether those differences can actually account for the results that we see rather than the actual intervention we're studying. The propensity score matching essentially what does it helps uh, with very rigorous statistical methodologies to balance the cohorts and baseline based on known compounders. So it may not be as perfect as the randomization, but at least it does take account for a number of different factors so that you can have a reasonably comparable population. So I think these are a couple of interesting things that we followed in our study. Yeah, and as you were mentioning, when using these large data sets, I mean, the numbers of patients are always very impressive. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the number of patients that you included in your study? Um, And uh, I'm particularly interested in how many patients actually had cancer and how many actually had open surgery. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned, we were fortunate to have a large number of patients, which is actually very helpful for studies like ours when we're trying to look at outcomes that have a very low incidence rate. Um, the total number of the patients in the study was two or around 225,000, mm-hmm. um, of which, uh, so these were all open and minimally invasive. Of those patients, uh, close to 39,000 had a cancer diagnosis. And of those, almost half of them um, had open uh, hysterectomy, so laparotomy. So close to 19,000 had open hysterectomies for cancer. So pretty high number. Yeah, so rarely do we hear a study with almost a quarter of a million patients uh, in gynecologic uh, (laughs) cancers. So uh, with regards to, and and I'm going to focus primarily on patients with cancer, with the patients with cancer, uh, what was the percentage that actually received no bowel prep, um, mechanical bowel prep, oral, and the combination? So within the malignant cohort, which I think is also reflective of all the different cohorts, most of the patients did not receive a bowel prep. So in the malignant cohort specifically, uh, around 87% did not receive a bowel prep. And then close to 10% received mechanical bowel prep alone, uh, close to 2% oral antibiotics alone, and close to 1.5% received a combination of the two. I see. And when you looked at all of these groups, um, basically coming to the, the, the main result and the, and the sort of like the punchline of the study, did you see if the use of bowel prep decreased surgical site infection or anastomotic leaks or any major morbidity after hysterectomy, both for benign and cancer? Mm-hmm. We, did, uh, we did do a number of different analyses that we had specified a priori in different layers. So looking at the entire cohort, so all hysterectomies, open, minimally invasive, 
we didn't see that the bulk operation was associated with uh, a decrease in any of the rates of surgical mobility, anastomotic leak, illness rates, major morbidity, irrespective of the indication of surgery. Now, of course, we knew ahead of time, based on the previous published literature, that the minimally invasive cohorts should be very different compared to the open. So we did do a subgroup analysis looking at the use of bulk preparation in general compared to no bulk preparation. And again, we didn't see any difference in the outcomes. And the next step in our analysis was to actually answer the question, uh, all right, all right we, we don't see a difference in bulk prep use in general, but what about the different types of bulk preparation? Is there a specific type that perhaps may be beneficial? So we did focus for this analysis on the open hysterectomies um, and then look separately behind in malignant education and we looked at the outcomes for each specific type. And even in this analysis, we didn't really find any difference in the rates of infectious morbidity and illness rates between individual types of bowel preparation compared to no preparation at all, no matter whether they have surgery for benign or malignant indications. As the final, and as you said, what are we most interested? As our final analysis, we wanted to really target these high-risk groups, the ones that we truly believe that perhaps there may be benefit and we found that that group was represented by the open hysterectomies for cancer indication who have at the same time a bowel resection. So we looked at this high-risk group and again, we looked at individual types of bowel preparation and we didn't really see that the any individual actually type of bowel preparation was associated with improved outcomes. So all in all, in our study, we didn't find that bowel preparation in general and specific types conferred any benefit in the gynecologic surgery population. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, basically, no matter how you look at it, bowel preparation did not seem to benefit uh, patients. And that and that's also very interesting. You pointed that out, that even in, uh, in the very high-risk population, of, or at least what we perceive as high-risk populations, the cancer patients with laparotomies, uh, that there was no benefit. But one of the things that I also noticed, uh, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on this, was that there was a trend towards higher rates of postoperative ileus when a bowel preparation was used uh, after hysterectomy in cancer. So actually, postoperative ileus was worse. Why, why do you think this might be the case? That's actually a very good question, and that was something that perhaps we didn't specifically anticipate to see. But I think um, I think there are some reasons to make these uh, really possible. Um, first of all, we know that bowel preparations actually has been shown in studies. Bowel preparations are associated with electrolyte abnormalities and fluid imbalances, either in the form of hypovolemia or hypervolemia, but both of those have been shown to alter the proper bowel function retempos operatively. And in addition, bowel preparation, I think specifically oral antibiotics can alter the normal bowel flora, which we know is also important in the appropriate bowel function return. So you take all these factors in addition to some of the unique characteristics of the surgeries that we do. So long surgeries, a lot of blood loss, or relatively speaking, perioperative use of antibiotics, bowel surgery, bowel manipulation. I think all these together could uh, work synergistically to have a negative impact in the bowel function return. So I think it is certainly possible and I think plausible from a pathophysiologist standpoint why that would be. Yeah. 
And and uh, Elefteria, one of the things that uh, you know, obviously, when when looking at these numbers, the, the, the numbers are impressive. Uh, but looking at the percentages, certainly, one might argue that the overwhelming majority of patients in your study did not receive any bowel prep. And some might argue as to whether there was enough uh, statistical power on the different types of bowel prep that were used to make a fair comparison. I mean, granted, recognizing when you look at the absolute numbers, they're impressive. But when you look at the percentages, uh, certainly they're, they're low in comparison to the patients that did not have any bowel prep. What, what are your thoughts to, to that argument? I think that's a, uh, I think that's definitely a fair comment for sure. Um, I believe that more than the relative percentage of how many patients received or didn't receive uh, some type of bowel preparation, I think the actual numbers of the patients within the various comparison is what matters with regards to power. Now, having said that, this is not for me to say that the size of the cohorts in some of the comparisons may not have been relatively small. I would say that would be uh, a true uh, statement, especially in comparison with other cohorts. However, I think um, it's also true that despite using such a large comprehensive database, the sample size in those cohorts remains small, which really raises the question whether a prospective trial will be able to yield a greater number of patients and give a better answer. Mm -hmm. And of course, that may sound too theoretical. Um, and for this reason, in our actually in our paper, we did include some calculations to show what that would look like. So we felt that perhaps a clinically relevant improvement would be a 20 to 30% decrease in the baseline rate of the surgical site infection, the way we found it in a study, which was around 19%. So in this particular comparisons, in order to show these uh, difference or improvements in that rate, we would require a sample size of uh, 1,500 patients per group mm -hmm. in order to have an adequate power to show that amount of difference. So I think it would be very difficult to achieve such a number in a prospective trial. Yeah. And, and in Alexia, one of the other things also that I notice in, in the literature is that, you know, often groups are compared of no bowel prep versus bowel prep at a different time point, obviously not together. And that when you're looking at the group that has had the intervention of bowel prep, it is often in conjunction with an integrated bundle for surgical site infection reduction. So always there is a question as to whether the benefit, is it really just from the bowel prep or is it because of the fact that now you have integrated all of these other elements to reduce the risk of, uh, of these infections? So what, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. well, that's a, a good consideration. Um, it was uh, unfortunately impossible to take into account uh, different practices changes over the years, either surgical side infection panels or the hazard recovery. We did look from 2006 to 2017, so it was a, a long period of time. And for a good part of that time, not a lot of initiatives encompassing those were actually implemented. But to more directly answer your question about individual components within bundles, I think I think what is safe to say is that when we are studying specifically the implementation of a certain bundle, we can only conclude what the aggregate effect is of these interventions together rather than what is the contribution of each individual intervention within the bundle. So um, having said that, 
in our study, we did take into account some of the baseline characteristics in terms of the geographic location of the practices, whether it was academic or uh, community practices, hoping to, in the baseline, account for those differences. When um, looking at the published literature, for example, for surgical site infection reduction bundles that incorporate the use of valve operation, um, there are some that have been shown to be successful as an aggregate to decrease the rate of surgical site infection, which I think is great, great for our practice, our patients, but it doesn't really say anything about the actual role of the valve operation as a single intervention within this bundle. And I would like to play the devil's advocate mm-hmm. in saying that there are some also other surgical side infection reduction bundles in the literature that forgo the use of valve operation and they've had similar, if not better, results. So I think I believe it's at the very least uh, provocative to think that perhaps the use of valve operation, even within these bundles, may not be necessary. Right. Just a and, and um, you know, so now... Again, I mean, I'll, I'll uh, put you a little bit on the spot. I'll ask you about your thoughts regarding our own practice here at MD Anderson, where we give oral um, antibiotics alone when suspecting that we will need to perform a bowel resection. So what are your thoughts? Should we change our practice? Are there any good studies that basically look at just oral antibiotics versus nothing at all? You mean any good studies in addition to our study? <laughs> <laughs> I am just kidding. Uh, that's a tough question. But I will start, first of all, by saying what the literature exists out there in addition to our study. So, um, unfortunately, looking at the literature as an aggregate, there are no prospective data on the use of oral antibiotics alone compared to no bad preparation in colorectal surgery. However, having said that, there are a couple of retrospective studies in the colorectal surgery literature that actually show that the use of oral antibiotics alone was associated with decrease in the post-operative infectious morbidity compared to no bulk preparation at all. However, I think what is important to note is that those studies had a baseline rate of surgical site infection around 20%, and they were not done in the context of PIRAS or surgical site infection battles. So as far as my thoughts, I believe that in general for any practice, I think when a practice is approaching a controversial topic like the one we're discussing, I think what's important is to for the practice to make choices in an intentional and rational way rather than just emotionally we're doing this because we're always done this way and then test the intervention and see what this the outcome they see. So I would ask, for example, in your case, in Atendi Anderson, I was wondering what is the reason why you added oral antibiotics in your practice? Is it because uh, you were trying to address a specific goal and that goal was met, then I think it makes sense for the practice to continue as is until at least you have better data or another set of interventions that can actually replace the ones you have in place. If the reason why you added the oral antibiotics may not be so well defined, I think there is always a possibility to readdress and reconsider. Um, yeah, no, I think that it, it always opens up uh, the, the, the discussion of whether not giving anything at all would achieve the, the same results. So now I um, wanted to ask you, because I know this comes up a lot um, in many uh, discussions or conferences, 
Um, and you mentioned briefly about minimally invasive surgery and, uh, and the results here in the study. Um, in our institution, we do not use Valpret um, for minimally invasive surgery, but I know that there's many, many centers around the world that still use Valpret prior to laparoscopy or robotics. Um, do you feel there's any indication for Valpret in minimally invasive surgery? No, unfortunately, I don't really believe there is a place for bowel preparation before minimally invasive surgery. I think the literature across the board for general surgery, colorectal surgery, gynecologic surgery has been very conclusive in showing that there is no benefit. Um, in fact, the literature, the only literature that we had in gynecologic surgery was in minimal invasive gynecologic surgery. And this literature has consistently shown that they don't have any benefit, no easier surgery or visualization or uh, infection rates. So I would say, and this is exactly what the recommendations from the different societies are, from the ERA Society, the American Society of Enhanced Recovery, the American College of Surgeons is very uh, is very um, constant across the board that they don't recommend the use, and I really hope to see practices um, across the world to stop using bile preparation before minimal invasive surgery. Actually, yeah, and um, and Elifteria, I think you mentioned it uh, before uh, on in terms of the feasibility of uh, prospective randomized trial, and particularly, obviously, with such. Uh, uh, low numbers uh, of uh, of uh, potential candidates for for this pro uh, potential prospective randomized trial, but one of the things that I wanted to follow up on that is that for anyone wanting to explore this question further, um, there's always the 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 endpoint of the surgical site infection as the as the ideal endpoint. My my question is the following: Is is surgical site infection the right target? to measure, particularly when in some centers, it's, it's already really low? Uh, that's a tricky question. Um, I believe that studying the impact of bowel preparation on post-operative infection morbidity is the right question. Uh, this is what we're trying to prevent. Now, how well this is captured by the use of surgical site infection, the way we report them, I think it's open to debate how the practices capture them, how they report them. Um, it's also, I think, open to debate whether it's truly a metric for quality indicator, but I don't believe that perhaps this is directly within what we're trying to uh, show here. I think as it pertains to our study and similar studies trying to answer the question, I think there are standard definitions of what is a surgical side infection, and as imperfect you know, or incomplete as the reporting may be, I think it's still a way to use a standardized language across the practices. And if the practices have a very low surgical side infection rate, then that brings even further to question whether there is truly a benefit in trying to study the use of bowel reparation. What are they trying to accomplish um, in terms of change or improvement in their outcome. So if they have a very low surgical side infection, I think perhaps they are meeting the target and perhaps bowel preparation is not what will help with further improvement. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that, again, it's, uh, as you mentioned, it, it's very variable from one institution to another with regards to the rate of surgical side infection and also how they are defining surgical side infection. 
And, uh, and I think that that's where you need to make sure that there is a, a, a very well concrete and defined uh, definition for what you're calling surgical site infection and also <laughs> by how much you're trying to, uh, to decrease it. But I think I know, you know, the, the, the answer to this next question, probably I know what you're going to say, but uh, for anybody that still says, nah, you know, I'm still going to use bowel prep, how should these results persuade them otherwise? I think, you know, I, I would like to say no bowel preparation ever again in guy surgery, effective immediately. But the reality is that, although there is some truth in that statement, I think the reality is that uh, some practices that may have a relatively high rate of post-operative infection mobility, they may feel somehow reserved to follow this practice. What I think at the very least uh, would be important, and I hope that our study uh, is uh, successful in doing so, would be to just encourage those teams, just critically revisit their practice, what they are doing, and perhaps at the very least consider implementing a comprehensive surgical side infection reduction battle to address the issue of post-operative infections within their practice. And perhaps within that effort, uh, consider adopting a bundle that forgoes the use of bowel preparation rather than just strictly adhering to uh, its use as a way to mitigate infections. I believe a step towards that direction would be a step forward, even if it means that some practices use it intentionally and some practices chose not to use it again intentionally. So, Elefteria, we're coming to the uh, to the end of our discussion and certainly would love to continue uh, talking with you about this topic. But one of the questions I often ask, uh, um, what do you do in your practice? What do they do at the Mayo Clinic? Are they still giving bowel prep for any reason at all? Uh, I'm glad you asked this question. We don't actually use any type of bowel preparation in our practice. I may have clinical just there. Uh, even when bowel resection is actually anticipated, in fact, we completely stopped using bowel preparation back in June of 2011 uh, because it was part of our ERAS pathway. So now it's uh, almost like a decade um, that we have implemented the ERAS pathway that did not use the bowel preparation and we didn't find any negative impact in our practice including infections, anosomotic liquids, need for operation, readmission. And we have published a number of studies over the course of the past few years that have actually shown that our outcomes have been sustained uh, through the years. And in fact, when we published our surgical site infection bundle, we saw a further decrease in our infection rates. And again, that bundle did not include the bulk operation. Um, there was a time, to be fair, uh, with uh, the colorectal surgery data that we contemplated whether there might be a benefit to add oral antibiotics, but our leak rate was close to 1%, and our infection rate in the highest risk group was around 2 to 3%, so we didn't really feel that there was any benefit, and I feel that our study uh, right now sort of reinforced our practice that has been shown to be safe. So, Letheria, thank you so much. Are there any closing remarks you would like to make? First of all, thank you so much, Dr. Ramirez, for inviting me for this podcast. I'm very excited to be able to speak with some of our work that we're doing. Um, I want to believe that I speak on behalf of all my co-authors when I say that 
we sincerely hope that our work and experience will encourage other practices to just take a closer look in terms of what they're doing and perhaps considering following a more evidence-based approach. And of course, recognizing that that approach will ultimately meet their own unique needs. But ultimately, everyone's goal is to just improve our patients' outcomes. I think with that, uh, I would also like to say that we're always happy and available to share our experience in the field with whoever needs some guidance. Well, thank you so much. This really has been a great pleasure, and uh, I have always uh, enjoyed uh, speaking with you and uh, learned so much from from those conversations. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you.